We're in Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to look at a couple of verses. You know this chapter, I'm imagining, if you've been a Christian at all for any length of time, you know this chapter highlights one big critical spiritual ingredient, and that is faith. Look at verse 1, chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's just a convictional confidence. That's what that means, and it goes on to say the conviction of things not seen. So there's this confidence, that's the word assurance, this conviction. You don't see it, but you have confidence in it. And men of old, verse 2, by it, faith, gained approval. Faith, not for faith's sake, but faith in the promises of God. And it articulates and highlights really key figures, examples throughout the uh, journey of humanity to highlight that if you're going to please God and do things that honor God and enjoy approval from God, you're going to exercise faith. And most of us know verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So there's this fundamental baseline conviction in a Christian who pleases God and enjoys blessing from God and makes a difference in the world for the glory of God. You are a faith-driven Christian. The just live by what? Faith. So faith is not just this confidence independent of an object. It is rooted in the object, which is a person, God, and the revelation of God to our benefit, his promises. Verse 32, after it talks about the faith of Rahab, verse 32, and what more shall I say? In other words, I could keep on talking to highlight it, but what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I took the time to talk of Gideon, who with 300 exercised faith and defeated a massive army, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. Look at this summary, just kind of, kind of puts it all together. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Now, if I'm writing in my Bible for the purposes today, I'm underlining this statement from weakness were made strong. From weakness were made strong, became might, mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. The operative ingredient, faith. Faith is the ingredient, the means, the necessary uh, factor in securing strength supernatural strength. This couldn't happen because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps strength. Not because I resolved to do it, not because I committed to it. I trusted God for it, and God enabled me to overcome and do it. Oppositional strength, supernatural divine enablement, supernatural supply when you're in conflict. Great armies opposing you, seen and unseen, strength is required, and faith is the means to that strength. They went from weakness, and the Greek word for that is no strength. 
absolutely can't win in this battle. Too few against too many were made strong. And they were able to be successful. Now go back to James chapter 4 for the setup for where we're going to continue our journey in a few minutes. James chapter 4. So it's the exercise of faith that I want to punctuate. And we'll connect the dots here in just a minute. But I didn't show you that last time and I wanted you to see it. Believing seeing it will... uh, Engrave it more fully on the heart of your faith. Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? Uh, Chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So we have a pleasure problem, the fallen man, the Adamic nature, depravity. We have a passion for pleasure, and we're willing to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish the satisfaction independent of God, of those desires. You lust and you do not have. This is the revelation of why we have so much conflict and therefore we commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We're deploying the wrong method, self-dependence instead of God-dependence. Verse 2, at the end, you do not have because you do not ask. You're not dependent upon God by way of petition. And then third, verse 3 Secondly, the method is wrong and the motive is wrong. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, it's self-satisfaction, self-interest. Any kind of prayer offered in self-interest is defective and therefore the goal is thwarted as it relates to God supplying satisfaction that only He can give. The expression of this is considered by God, this passion for self, And the world that supplies the satisfactions is adultery, spiritual adultery. You adulteresses, do you not know? And apparently they didn't, but he's making it plain that they did, that the friendship they have with the world to obtain the satisfactions is hostility toward God. The root of that is hateful. So it's not only hurtful, it's hateful toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that's a choice you make to befriend the world. You make yourself an enemy of God. You're befriending the world because the world is your exclusive source for your satisfactions. The cosmos, the world in which you live, is the substitution for the God who has given you spiritual life and will provide for satisfaction like a spring of living water. Verse 5, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Adultery, because God has a passion for His Spirit which is in you. Your human spirit could be a small s. And then an alternative translation, which I actually like better, is the Spirit in us envies jealously the world in which we live for the satisfactions which we desire. So either way, verse 5 says we're adulterers either because we violate our relationship with God who desires an intimacy with us or because we consistently have an appetite for the world that violates His will for our life and causes us to seek satisfaction independent of His grace and goodness at the harm of others. Verse 6, but... But, adversative conjunction, despite the challenges we have, worldliness, conflict, 
betrayal of a trust, a covenant relationship, verse 6, but God, he, capital H, gives greater grace. Unmerited favor, help from heaven, heavenly horsepower, bigger, greater than what? Our earthly challenges and our humanity and the attraction of the world around us and all the hostility generated by those convictions. He gives greater grace. Now look at the conjunction or the connective. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you need greater grace. We're grateful for the one who is static present, willing to always give it. There's not a day that he's not willing to provide asset support for those who he loves and who need to overcome the challenges of the flesh and the world and the enemy. He gives greater grace, but that grace, which is greater, is exclusively reserved for whom? The humble. He gives grace to the humble. And so those who need help from heaven. God resists the proud or is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then where this is the section we're in, seven through nine, these are the components of expressed humility. So the humble do this. If you're humble, it's not just because I say Harry or Harry says to God, I'm humble. These are the expressions of humility. There's five categories, ten verbs that are mandates of activity to express the humility that allows you, verse 10, humble yourselves, something you do. God can do it, but it's better if you choose to do it, to humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He'll do what? He'll exalt you. So victory over my depravity, my appetite for pleasure, my propensity to pursue the world as a satisfaction for those appetites, my propensity to do whatever it takes, hurtful toward God or hurtful toward men, that challenge requires grace, help from heaven. Not Harry trying harder, Harry getting assets from God to overcome the challenges that are greater than my capacity. That's why the just live by faith. And that's why faith is the critical component which allows you to experience what you need to enjoy the victory that makes you the friend of God, not his enemy, and a blessing to the world in which you live. And you get off this kind of gerbil-like treadmill of self-satisfaction that never satisfies. You move from Twinkies to life that is truly life. Verse 6, he gives greater grace to the humble. Verse 7, who are the humble? Those who submit themselves to God. Number 2, and that's subordinate, arrange yourself under voluntarily active somebody who does this knowingly, and it expresses itself in obedience. Verse 7, the second main category is you submit to the will of God and you resist the enemy of God. So instead of resisting one another, instead of being adversarial to God, you resist the enemy because you have powerful influences within you and you have powerful influences around you. That's the implication. The enemy, the God of this world, you need to resist him and his methods. So number two, and that's where we are today, finishing up, 
the first thing, if you desired God, and then the incredible gain of the grace that he provides, great aid and great benefit, you need to submit. Submission to God is freely and joyfully subordinating your will to God's will in objective obedience. Number two, it involves confrontation, not just submission. You resist the devil. Be ready and resolved to stand in the truth of your Christian testimony and the word of God. Resist the devil. What does it say? Verse 7, and he will do what? Flee from you. Which is interesting. Mark 14 talks about the disciples in the garden when the enemies of Jesus showed up and they, they had this encounter, this exchange, and then at the end of the exchange, it says that all of the disciples fled. They took off out of fear. One so fearful, a young man, Mark describes, not named, robed in a linen garment over his naked body, when they seized him, the enemies of Christ, he ran away naked after they grabbed his garment. That's the idea of fleeing. It is a rapid, I've got to get out of here. That's the enemy. That's the promise for those who will resist him. Because the enemy's your problem, a problem. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You wrestle against divine powers in high places, spiritual wickedness, and he will flee if you will resist. Resist is a defensive word. Resist is a defensive posture. It means to stand where you are, no retreat, and no running away or no defeat. Now go to Ephesians chapter 6, because this is another passage that we've been working our way through, which has the ingredients necessary to resist successfully. You need to be strong. This is 10, chapter 6, the book of Ephesians, verse 10. Be, finally, this is the end of the exhortations to walk in a worthy manner, which began in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, passive voice, meaning you're not the actor, you're the receiver. Present tense, daily. Daily, receive strength. That's be strong. Daily receive strength, which comes from the Lord in the realm of God's strength and in the strength of his might. You need supernatural assets. That is the first criteria for enjoying victory against the enemy. You need assets you don't have in order to stand against the enemy that you do have. And I, I talked a long time about this, but this is the Place your faith. How do you get strong? Well, I asked those guys we read about, if we were going to line them up as witnesses, how did you become strong? How did you overcome Gideon, your adversary? How did you, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, overcome the fire? Daniel, how did you close the mouths of lions? How? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promise of God. I was confident in the promiser, and I was promised, I was confident in what he had promised. And I stood there, and I lived out of that faith. And what happened to me when I exercised faith? I grew strong. From weakness, I was made strong. So this is proactive pursuit 
of a daily desperate dependence that says ahead of time, I'm going to gain assets that I do not have. Divine assets. Because if you're going toe-to-toe with the enemy, the God of this world, and you, we've, we've gone through some of the highlights of the Scripture, His capacity, you can read it in Job, you can read it in the Revelation, you can see His capacity. It is supernatural. It is angelic. It is demonic in the sense of its desires. It's hurtful and destructive, anti-God, anti-those bearing the image of God, but you need strength. And this is rehearsed, Deuteronomy 31.6, Moses to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble for the Lord. Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Again, Moses to Joshua, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. Who's in the land? Giants. Double-walled cities. You're going to succeed? You need supernatural assets. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.7, only be strong and very courageous. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Joshua, to the people of God in Joshua 10, verse 25, before the battle, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for Yahweh will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. And he just made a promise about the enemies being defeated. First Chronicles 19.13, Joab to David's army, be strong. Let us show ourselves courageous. First Chronicles 22.13, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. First Chronicles 28.20, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear, do not be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you. 2 Chronicles 15, 7, prophet Azariah to Asa of Judah prior to the religious reforms, spiritual activity to align God's people to the priorities of God, but you be strong, do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. 2 Chronicles 25, 8, the man of God to Amaziah before a war, a battle, but if you do go, do it, be strong for the battle. Yet God will bring you down before the enemy, for God has power to help and to bring down. 2 Chronicles 32, 7, Hezekiah to the people of God before their battle, be strong, be courageous, do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria. Doesn't matter how many they have, doesn't matter how big your challenge, no matter how great the battle, when you resist an enemy stronger than you, you need an asset. And it is an everyday asset. It is not self-dependence. It is God-dependence. Harry, why are you rehearsing all these verses? Because Harry has a propensity to be self-dependent. And what this verse says, there's no day, Harry, that you have enough strength to overcome any spiritual obstacle, let alone a supernatural enemy who you need to resist. Cultivate this concrete conviction. Self-sufficiency is no sufficiency. 
This is not be strong once or twice a week at Grace Church on Sunday. This is an every day get what you don't have or you'll not prevail. That's why it's desperate daily dependence. You cultivate that I am not sufficient in myself. And listen, self-sufficiency has clues. I get up, I start my day without God. That's a clue Harry is self-sufficient. I remember Martin Luther said, I have so many things to do today, I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. Did you ever read that? That's not how I default. Self-sufficiency doesn't have a daily study time. It thinks that one meal a week is sufficient for the victorious warrior. Self-sufficiency doesn't cultivate significant and intimate Christ-purposed relationships. I'm Rambo. I'm on my own. There's no solo Christianity that's successful Christianity. Self-sufficiency doesn't commit to corporate fellowship or worship. It believes it doesn't need other believers. Encouragement, the strengthening of God's people, the stimulating of good deeds and good thoughts. Self-sufficiency is delusional and anti-biblical. Bottom line, it's not humility, it's pride. I'm an American. It's all about getting up and working hard. Not if you're a Christian. It's about getting up and praying hard. It's about getting up and declaring yourself dependent. It's about you scavenging the scripture for promises that are available to you and living by faith in light of those promises. From weakness, we're made strong. But that's not the only thing a Christian is to do if they're going to resist successfully this parallel passage of the passage we're in. Verse 11, put on, the second major idea is put on the full panoply, the all of it, armor of God, all of the combat necessary equipment to be successful. This is an allegory, a metaphor, an extended one. What Roman soldiers wore, Paul's borrowing on the symbolism in order to help us understand that we need the armor of God. Not the armor Harry made in his basement. Not the one I bought offline from a do-it-yourself armor guy. If you're going into battle, you want armor made by the best craftsman possible. This is God's armor. You need assets God gives to you in order to withstand so that you can stand firm. That's the idea, verse 11 so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you get strength, and then you get dressed. Naked warriors lose. I don't care how many ripples you have in your abdominal region or when you flex your arms. I want the guy who's strong and has armor. You with me? Full armor of God against the schemes of the devil Throw down is his name there. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Big enemy, bigger than us, and it's not humanity. It's a spiritual enemy that informs, empowers, and influences through the children of disobedience that are under his seducing 
control. Verse 13, therefore, because you have such a big enemy, he's going to say it again, take up the full armor of God. Aorist, tense, middle voice. You do this for your benefit. Aorist means you do it now. Two, middle voice means you're doing it for your benefit. God's not going to dress you. You dress yourself for your benefit. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist, there's our idea, resisting the enemy, in the evil day. And I take that to be the temptation day. Every day is not the evil day. You could argue it, this, all of this season is evil, but I do believe this is about the day when the enemy seeks to sift you or specifically challenge you by way of temptation. It's evil when you're confronted by the evil one or those representing him. And then it says, and having done everything to stand firm. Because you need it all. So you're going to get dressed. Here's what the dress has to do with girding your loins, stand firm, therefore, state it again, Stand firm, resist, stand firm, do everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. All right, that's the the belt of truth. You tighten your belt, which means you acquire truth, and you sincerely express a desire to live that truth. One of the things about truth is it's not just content, it's sincerity, it's truthfulness. So the belt is what holds up your breastplate and your belt is what holds your weapons and this is ahead of time. You tighten your belt with the truth that you've acquired in order to go to war. The belt which consists of truth and truthfulness. In other words, it's not a sham. It's not just Harry knowing stuff. It's Harry knowing stuff with an appetite sincerely to live what I know. Peace number one. Piece number two, in terms of armor, godly armor, God's armor, battle-ready equipment, and these are in order, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is an action you do, it's not what you receive, you put on the breastplate which consists of righteousness, this is practical righteousness. So you acquire it, and you apply the truth, and live in a righteous way. Number, verse 15, thirdly, you shod your feet with the preparation, so this is ahead of time, you put your shoes on, you tighten them down, you lace them up, they have... um, Spikes on the shoes, nails on the shoe that enable you to stand and maneuver. That consists, this preparation of your feet, your foundation is the gospel of what truth? Peace with God. So I accept the fact that God's with me. I stand in the reality that I am a Christian. I know the truth. I've acquired it. I've learned it. I'm applying it, and I'm standing in the confidence that God is on my side. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, before Christ and before the gospel, having no hope and without God in the world. But now that I do, I have Romans 5.1, peace with God. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen to Psalm 56, 9, David. But this I know, this I know, that God is for 
In essence, the idea involves courage which comes from the peace of knowing the good news that God is now with me. I'm not the enemy of God. I'm not without God. I'm not only God's friend, God's son. I enjoy support from heaven. If you're not standing on that promise with great confidence and faith, you will not be stable. You will not succeed. You'll get pushed around. Defensive posture. Stand firm. It's a push against me. I'm not running around looking for the enemy. The enemy on the evil day is coming for me. And I'm standing my ground because I have assets, the truth. I'm applying the truth. My heart protector. Polybius said the, the, the breastplate was the heart protector. My vitals are protected. Because I'm living what I know. I'm applying what I know. And I'm standing on the reality that God is with me. Number four. There are six pieces of armor. Verse 16. In addition to all. In addition to what? My belt, my heart protection, the breastplate, and my shoes. In addition to that, covering it all, I need these three elements. Verse 16, in addition to all, the preparations I've already made, take up the shield of faith by which you will be able to extinguish all, I like the word all, all the flaming arrows of whom? The evil one who's coming on the evil day. The shield of faith. The shield... The Greek word has to do with the word door. It comes from the word door. It was two and a half feet wide. It was four and a half feet high. It was maneuverable. You could move the door. It had two pieces of wood put together. They were glued together. Then it was covered with leather or a linen that they would soak before they went into battle. And then it was strapped with metal. And Roman soldiers took a defensive position when they were together where they would make a wall of doors and they were protected from what? Arrows. In order to be successful, because the enemy will shoot flaming arrows, darts of seductive, explosive temptations. It's interesting, one warrior Historically, in one battle, Sceva, he had 220 darts in his shield. That's a lot of protection. There was a technique where they would either light the arrows, or they also learned to have uh, petroleum or some product that would burn housed inside so that when it hit, it exploded. Explosive, flaming, seductive, igniting darts. And I just take this to say there are kinds of challenges that are explosive. A kind of temptation that you didn't expect out of nowhere and all of a sudden you're in a battle. Somebody's done something and that anger wells up and it's explosive. You see something, read something, and your, your passions are ignited. What quenches? What puts that fire out? What prevents injury and danger or destruction is a shield. 
which consists of what? Faith. Faith in what? Well, we've already tasted it. The same thing that makes you strong is what protects you like a door. Faith in the promises of God. When the enemy says, hey, listen, you're never going to get married. You're never going to find a person or the one you're with, they're not going to satisfy you. So just find a solution on your own. Navigate this. And what the door of faith would say is, no, no good thing would God withhold from those who walk uprightly. I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to believe that. Yeah, but I don't have anything today. I know. The faith shield that protects me from the explosive temptation of self-satisfaction is the confidence that God will provide for me. That he'll supply it in his time. Remember, Abraham's promise took a while to evolve. And remember, he compromised a number of times. He lied to Abimelech. He, he, he said, she's my sister, which was a half-truth. And he did so in order to protect himself. Oh, or I'll take Hagar. I'll take my wife's advice. I'll make sure I have a son. Instead of trusting what the Lord had promised, I'm going to give you a son in due time. Faith says, I'm going to trust the truth. So here's the fourth ingredient. I'm going to acquire the truth. I'm going to apply the truth. I'm going to accept with confidence God is with me, that truth. And number four, I'm going to stand and trust the truth that God has given me in his word. And total success is guaranteed. It says he will flee from me. And verse 16 says, with which you will be able, guaranteed, to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Shall be able, all of them. I have the capacity and I am guaranteed the victory. First Peter 5, 9, he's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but resist him firm in your faith. Number six, or number five, rather. The fifth and sixth piece you find in verse 17. It goes on to say, and take, aorist middle, for your own benefit, action you take, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet of salvation keeps you from quitting and it keeps you from running out of fear or discouragement, doubt and despair. Historically, the Roman helmet was cast in bronze with leather attachments. Sometimes there would be an ornamental plumage on the top. It was designed to keep someone from getting a literal split personality from the broadsword that the enemy would wield to strike a fatal blow to the head. The connection with spiritual victory is the hope that is represented by that helmet of salvation. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, where the helmet is referred to as the hope of salvation. This is, I will win. 
This is the confidence that I win. I have the victory. So doubt, despair, discouragement, I have hope on my head to protect my mind. I do not have doubt. I have strength and conviction. It ensures a confidence and a deliverance in the end, which may be relentless. Listen, if you live in a fallen world, challenged by the fallen humanity in you, by the pressure and the seductions of the world around you, you can get tired. And then if you fumble the ball and fail, you can feel defeated and discouraged and prone to quit and give up. And the hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation, is the declaration that not only am I forgiven, past tense from all my sin, present tense, I'm empowered and victorious over the sin that I struggle with, and I'm guaranteed ultimately to be delivered from the presence of sin. So my past, forgiven. Present, I have power to overcome and I'm guaranteed someday to be delivered from it. And that helmet keeps my head hopeful and strong and confident. I, uh, I don't know if you care about this, but I watched the Los Angeles Rams play on Thursday night. They have a new quarterback. He's been with the club three days. Their starting quarterback is injured. So this guy, Baker Mayfield, comes in from Carolina who just cut him. He comes in. After the first series, Baker's the quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. Going into the fourth quarter, L.A.'s playing the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders. L.A.'s behind 16-3. to Fourth quarter. What are you inclined to do if you're a fan, 16-3, to going into the fourth quarter? Get to the car before everybody else leaves. <laughs> Right? Game's over. Anybody know what happened? Baker Mayfield, quarterback of three days with the Los Angeles Rams, led them to victory 17 to 16. 98-yard drive, less than two minutes. So if you'd have left the stadium, you'd have missed a great victory because you were discouraged at the end of three quarters. I know that's a bit of a stretch, but here's the application. (laughs) You're inclined to quit unless you trust that you're going to win the game. You wouldn't be the first athlete to take your helmet off and go sit on the bench and say that we've lost the game. The guarantee with the helmet of salvation is you win the game. No matter what the score is today, you're not looking at the score today. You're looking at the guarantee of the final score. Don't leave the stadium early. Don't take your helmet off early. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't complain. Hold your ground. Stand behind the promises. Count on those promises. And make sure you got the helmet that says, I have hope. Count on the truth that I win. I will win. Number six. Oh, let me show you one thing since we're in close proximity. Ephesians chapter one. 
really punctuates this with confidence in terms of our ultimate outcome. Ephesians 1 is that great benediction. He's this run-on sentence from like verse 3 through verse 14, which is the Apostle Paul talking about the treasure that is ours, all the spiritual blessings, and we're chosen by God in advance. We're ransomed by God through the work of Jesus Christ, so we're predestined. We're, we're ransomed. God has lavishly blessed us. And then he says this, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance. So as a benefit, as a Christian, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, blessed by God with the redemptive work of his son, we have obtained as a consequence an inheritance. We have it. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Chosen by God, guaranteed by God to bring ultimate glory to God. Verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, okay, so you and we like they have heard the message of truth, which consists of the good news of salvation, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's good news in the work of Christ, having also believed, so we've trusted that, now look at what it says at the end of 13. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, sealed us who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So this is what you need to strengthen your hope in Christ today, despite your circumstances, is I have been, as a part of the work of God, as a result of my believing in the good news, I have been sealed. And as a validation of the sealing of the Spirit of God, which guarantees my outcome and inheritance, I've been given a pledge. Arabone, the Greek word means, it has the idea of an earnest, a down payment. You put it down, and it guarantees that full payment is coming. It's like an engagement ring. It was actually used as an engagement ring in the Koine Greek age when this was written. My engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, guarantees I'm going to realize the union with Christ. Guaranteed. All the benefits that have been promised, like an earnest, a down payment, it guarantees I get it. That's what I anchor in, count on. I understand that I have been promised something because of what I have believed in terms of the gospel. I'm sealed. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to win the game. And I'm going to win the game because he has promised I will be an inheritor and a victor. Those whom he justifies, he does what? He glorifies. He does sanctify. And he glorifies. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. The last piece of the armor. The helmet is counting on the truth. You get hope from it and in it. And then it says, and take up the sword of the Spirit. 
The historical sword referred to here, Machaira, is not the broad sword, the big one. There is a reference, this is a reference rather, to a 6 to 18 inch dagger-like sword carried on the soldier's belt. It was a very precise weapon used in hand-to-hand combat, which if you could wield it with a measure of skill, you could defend yourself and you could actually cut the enemy to ribbons. Now, two things you need to understand. The Machaira had to do with precise use of the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. So the Word of God is the sword you wield. And it's precision, and it's useful as it relates to this defensive response. And there's a couple of things to notice. Number one is the source of it is the Spirit of God. So it's His Word, not Harry's Word, or your uncle's Word, or some television evangelist, their word. It's the word of God. It's coming from the Bible, inspired by God as a means of hope and help. Number two, the specific word used here, the word of God, is not logos. It's not talking about the the content of Scripture, the logos of God, the Word of God. It is talking about, rhema is a reference, that's the word. Rhema is a reference to the part in lieu of the whole. It is a reference to the parts of the Bible. The sword of the Spirit has to do, and it properly means, a word spoken. So the rhema of God is the parts, the specific precise parts that are spoken. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the enemy, because he is not God, can't read your mind. You can meditate on the Word of God. You can think about the Word of God. But does the enemy know what you're thinking, yes or no? No. He's not omniscient. God is omniscient. How is he going to know the truth that resists him? How are you going to wield this rhema of God? You're going to speak it. You're going to quote it. You're actually going to do what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. When the enemy says, hey, you can turn these stones into bread. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Just feel it. Temptation of Jesus, one-on-one with the enemy. A validation of his and a confirmation of his character. Chapter 4, Matthew. Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the diabolos. Same one who's going to challenge you on the evil day or one of his emissaries. This is an example of Jesus in his humanity, dealing with the enemy. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Verse 4, but he answered and said, it is written. And he said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
Yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I can turn these stones into bread, but I am in my humanity dependent upon God's provision, not self-provision. That's the idea of verse 4. Verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, "If, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and now the enemy is going to quote God's words. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the enemy can use the Bible as a tool to to tempt and seduce to behavior that's inconsistent with the will and way of God. And Jesus takes the scripture that is twisted and says, verse 7, on the other hand, it is written, And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, and the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So the enemy can do supernatural uh, things in order to bring about temptation in the evil day. It doesn't have to be natural. It can be supernatural. It was with Jesus. You could argue that he only did it with Jesus. I'm going to argue that he can do whatever he does. And he did it with Jesus, and Jesus' response to seeing the kingdoms of the world and Satan's temptation, all these, verse 9, things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus, the example of how to wield the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. And the other... Gospels say, for a more opportune time. The enemy is an opportunist. He's a tempter and a seducer. He's a scripture twister. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the tool in your hand, is when you quote the word of God, which is true, and you say it out loud, and you stand against him, having done all to stand. This guarantees that he will, listen to me, flee from you. Not because you send him to dry places, not because you take authority over him, because you stand in the truth given to you by God, and you quote it, you stand in it, you trust it, you count on it, you're prepared for it, you've got strength not your own, and you're wielding resources that are supernatural, God's armor and God's word. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You're going to lose unless you do. You don't get greater grace unless you humble yourself and say, God, I'm going to submit to you, and God, I'm going to resist in the ways you've gifted me the capacity to do so. I'm going to stand in that. Now, I'm going to say one more thing, and then we'll go and I'll run to the airport. Look back at Ephesians chapter 6. Because there is a connected verse that I want to highlight before we leave this morning, and it's verse 18. Because verse 18, though it's a new paragraph, connects to the spiritual warfare paragraph, the standing firm paragraph. Look at verse 18, with all prayer, as you stand in your armor, empowered by supernatural strength, you need to communicate with your commander-in-chief. You need support, instructions, and you may even need some measure of recon from headquarters. Because it says, with all prayer, all prayer, 
all sorts of prayer. Offensive, defensive, protect me, help me. I need wisdom. I need direction. All prayer. Look at what it says. And petition. Petition is the the kind of um, urgent, please help me. Prayer, the word prayer, has to do with worship. So with worship expression, God, I'm dependent upon you. I'm begging you for direction and help at all times. Now, don't miss that. Good times and hard times. Because seduction and temptation can come when you least expect it. You know what, Harry? I mean, I'm walking with God. I, I love my wife. My kids love me. God's using me. At all times, God protect me. God get me, give me sensitivity at all times. Then he goes on to say, in the spirit. And I take that to mean submitted and sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit, his guidance, his governance. In the spirit, with this in view. What in view? The danger I'm in, if God doesn't lead me, direct me, and provide for me. I am talking to my commander. Keep alert with this in view. Verse 18, be on the alert. That has the idea of being head up, eyes open, with all perseverance. Now, I take that to mean I have to be disciplined. Because to be a praying Christian, to be a God-dependent, everyday seeker, to be standing strong in the day of adversity, to put the armor on and get dressed every day, and to pray in that zone takes perseverance. I got to stay with it. Disciplined even when it's hard, when you want to quit, and disciplined even when you feel hopeful and can get careless. And then it says, this prayer, this perseverance and petition for whom? All the saints. So this isn't just Harry getting up and saying, God, help me, lead me, protect me, direct me, provide for me today. Harry, will you please take care of Nathan and Mark and James and Wayne and Johnny and Katie? Will you take care of my family? My fr- It's just praying for your family. Because in the end, it's never about me. It's about us. Aren't you glad for the straight-up encouragement that says, hey, finally, fight this battle. Stay strong. Resist the enemy. Humility says, I'm not caving. I'm not giving in. God's given me what I need, and this is how I win the victory. I need help, and it's not just about me. It's about us. Can you say amen to that? I love the Bible, don't you? Humble yourself. Resist. Greater grace. Bigger than all the challenges. And it's the third quarter. But the fourth quarter, it'll end well. Father, thank you for the time today. I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the grace that is greater. I thank you for all of the wealth, the blessing that is ours in Christ, all spiritual blessings housed in heaven, supplied by the God of heaven, dispensed wisely and in our time of need. Amazing grace, abundant grace. 
Lord, I'm grateful for your love for us. And I pray that we'll be faithful and strong and we'll stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Lord, if there's a conscience stimulus this morning, a quickening of our conscience, a category where we say we know it, but we're not living it, that we would correct it, that we would repent and confess and believe and receive. And Lord, as we think about tomorrow morning, how we start our day, Lord, would you help us to honestly assess self-dependence or desperate God-dependence? Lord, I pray you'll make us what you want us to be so that we'll stand, as you promised, faultless before your presence with great joy. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great morning.